CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. And working from home last week, working from the office, so back to the home set here in the dining room. Glenn Kessler is our special guest this week. We're going to have a conversation about facts, fact-checking, and the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. And right then and there, facts, fact-checking, Donald Trump, that's a mouthful all by itself, with many implications for accuracy, for fact-checking, for truth in this country, and for the journalists who try to run those facts to ground or bring them to the audience, their audience, with as much clarity and context as possible. Glenn is the author, along with his partners at the Washington Post, Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly, of a new book called Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. Glenn, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So I want to start this conversation not about the book, but about presidents and their relationship to the truth. I haven't talked to the president, meaning Donald Trump, about this personally, but I believe those around him think about truth in this way. Oh, come on. Other presidents have told lies, and they've been bigger lies, and people have died because of those lies, or people kept dying because of those lies. And whatever Donald Trump does or doesn't do with a troop, he hasn't killed anybody, and people haven't died in the numbers that they did under Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon. And they didn't set up a bureau of truth uh, to push out propaganda and pass a sedition law like Woodrow Wilson did. So he's a piker compared to his predecessors. Again, I'm not sure that's exactly how they would put it, but I think it's in the general ballpark, and I think you might agree. Mm -hmm. Respond to that. Well, um, I would respectfully disagree with that basic uh, assertion. Um, I mean, every president lies. There are lots of reasons why presidents lie. They sometimes do it for national security. They sometimes do it to protect themselves from embarrassment, such as you know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, they uh, sometimes do it because they're trying to sell a program. You know, you would think of, uh, you know, you want to keep your doctor, you can, uh, you know, you keep your plan, you can keep your plan, that kind of thing. Um, what is unique about Trump, and I have covered every president since Ronald Reagan, and of course studied previous presidents before then. What is unique about Trump is that he misleads and says false things and lies about just about everything on a regular basis. And he has, he, before the coronavirus uh, struck, 
uh, he had pretty good economic news. He would mislead about that. He would routinely inflate by 600,000 the number of jobs created in his administration. Uh, and I think what is, you know, uh, what, part of the reason why we wrote our book was to, you know, we have been fact checking the president day in and day out. And uh, we have this created this database, which at this point has more than 19,000 uh, claims in it. Uh, but to see it all in one place and to read it through and to look at how on just about every issue you could imagine, the president has not told the truth about himself, about his enemies, about his policies. Um, I think it's, it's for many people, it would be, it will be actually shocking to see it all in one place. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, and how comfortable or uncomfortable are you, Glenn, with the word lie? Uh, I've never been particularly comfortable with it. Lie means you have to get into someone's head and you and say, they knowingly said this knowing it was false. And one of the unique things about President Trump is I actually think he often believes what he's saying, even if it's completely contradictory to what he said the day before. He's very situational. He lives in the moment. And um, so... You know, we we said it was a lie when he said he didn't know about the payments to his alleged paramours. Well, he was recorded on tape talking about those payments. That's pretty definitive truth that he should have known it was, you know, the uh, not the truth. But on other things, you know, when he, uh, I mean, here's a here's an example of a policy issue. Um, he has routinely inflated by a factor of 10 or 20, the number of jobs that could have possibly been created by the business deals with Saudi Arabia. And um, I mean, in one space of five minutes, he went from 600,000 jobs to a million jobs. Uh, but he, uh, and when I looked into it, I got, I got obtained a list of all the deals and, and a lot of them were, you know, you know, weren't, hadn't come to fruition and the numbers were much smaller than he talked about. And in fact, most of those jobs are being created in Saudi Arabia, not in the United States. But I think he's convinced himself that actually he has achieved creating a million jobs with Saudi Arabia, even though it's not that at all. And that's one reason why he continues to uh, uh, not punish Saudi Arabia for the brutal killing of my former colleague, Jamal Khashoggi. So, <laughs> you know, there you see actually a policy implication from the president believing something that is not true. And even though I fact-checked it a number of times, he's not going to believe me. He's going to believe himself. Right. And there are implications from that exaggeration and or that misstatement that carry great weight. Back to our original conversation about, well, these lies are possibly innocent as compared to others. You would say in that instance and others, no, they're not. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, when you question, has anyone died because of his lies? Well, you know, his, his uh, statements about the coronavirus, mm -hmm. where he uh, downplayed it uh, to such an extent that um, the United States was caught flat-footed by the emergence of the virus. Well, I mean, you know, one could make a case that, you know, more people have passed away from the virus because the United States was not prepared. So is that, can you attribute that to, to President Trump's rhetoric? 
I'm not about to do that, but you know, there are certainly people that might make that uh, linkage. There are others in the Trump world, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, because I'm sure you get more feedback even than I do on these kinds of points. Uh, and we can talk about that. But uh, during the campaign in 2016 and throughout covering the presidency, part of the feedback is he's an exaggerator. Everybody knew that. He said it in his first best-selling book in plain English, that he's an exaggerator, that he is a marketer, and that he grabs publicity and uses it to his own advantage. That would be their context point one. Context point two is they would say, you guys don't get it. Every time you chase one of these facts and prove it to be misleading or something, you're giving more publicity to the thing he wants more publicity about, which is his way of manipulating you guys without you guys even knowing it. Respond to those two. Well, I, I think it gives um, a little too much credit to the president. Which is what people around Trump do, as of course, right. you know that as well as I do. Right, right. right. But that's giving him, I'd say that's giving him too much credit. First of all, he's the president of the United States. There is a baseline standard for the, for the credibility of the president. Uh, you know, if he's misleading the American people on a regular basis, that probably means he's also mis misleading other foreign leaders. In fact, we have evidence of him saying things that are false to foreign leaders. I mean, he once admitted he got in a big fight with Justin Trudeau, where he said, of course, you have a trade deficit with us. When he, he admitted, you know, in a recording that we later obtained, he admitted, actually he had no idea, but he couldn't possibly imagine that there was a surplus. And Trudeau was like, it's a surplus, guy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that gets to the basic credibility of 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 the president. So if, if members of Congress can't trust what he says, if other foreign leaders can't trust what he says, if the American people can't trust what he says, that's a problem. And you can't, don't really expect a president to routinely mislead on so many ways. Um, I mean, the other thing is he's trying to get us, he gets us to write about these things I don't know. Hold you know, that I, thought, Glenn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you think about that because I need to jump to a break. I made you get with Glenn Kessler, the book, Donald Trump and His Assault on the Truth. Back in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back and a special shout out to our audience listening for the second week on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. Fantastic to be on Sirius XM and to all of our terrestrial radio stations, the two most recent KFMB in my hometown of San Diego and KDKA in Pittsburgh. Great to have you on the Takeout Radio Network. And for those of you who are early adopters on the podcast platforms, we know and love you. Same thing on CBSN. Glenn Kessler is our special guest. Donald Trump and his assault on the truth, on truth, is the book. Glenn Kessler is the head fact checker for the Washington Post. He also works with Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly. That is the team. So I set you up, Glenn. You're chasing these things, thereby amplifying what he says, and he's basically using you to his own publicity devices. Well, I, I don't really accept that either. Uh, I mean, he, what, the fact checks when we say, hey, it's for Pinocchios, our worst rating, this is false, doesn't really uh, help him in terms of getting his message out. Uh, I fully admit that, you know, not everyone will buy our analysis or they will look at it through a partisan lens. I mean, I view these fact checks as like little 
paper boats I put on the river and they go off and who knows what people do with them. Um, uh, and there is, so studies have shown that uh, when people who support Donald Trump read fact checks, that they come away better informed about what the truth is, but it doesn't necessarily change their opinion of the president. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the Washington Post, we, we did a poll last year where we replicated a question that was asked 15 years ago, uh, you know, where we Republicans, Democrats, and independents were asked, is it important for a president to be honest and trustworthy? Right. And 15 years ago, 70% of Democrats, Republicans, and independents said yes. When we redid re the poll with the exact same question, 70% of independents and Democrats still said yes, but 49% of Republicans said yes. And that's st statistically significant. And it suggests that they understand the president is not telling the truth, but because they support him politically, they decided that's not really an important attribute for a president anymore. Right. I want to ask you about something that I wrote about in my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, and it reflected conversations I had with many Trump supporters in 2016. And it went something like this. I know he's not factually accurate, but he speaks larger truths or truths that are more important to me. He's on to something that's bigger than the Washington power structure or establishment wants to admit. And when I would ask for specifics, the first thing almost always was immigration and the importance of a border wall to them trade and the hollowing out of the manufacturing sector of our country and getting tough with China, not just talking about it. And I came away from those conversations with the general assumption that their feeling was many politicians were factually accurate, but misleading them about their intention. Trump was factually inaccurate, but honest about his intentions. And they were willing to take the latter and were sick of the former. Well, the way I, what, the way I look at it is, Part of Trump's secret sauce for being elected in 2016 was he said things that a lot of his core supporters already believed to be true, but previous candidates wouldn't say it because they actually knew they weren't true. Mm. So for instance, Trump would routinely say millions of illegal immigrants are crossing our border every year. Now a more conventional Republican candidate like a Mitt Romney or a Mario Rubio wouldn't have said that because they knew it wasn't true. They would frame it in ways of saying, you know, Im illegal immigration is something we have to worry about or we have to crack down, but they wouldn't say something so demonstrably untrue. But because Trump was saying it, millions of, Amer of illegals are crossing the border. It sounded like finally there was a politician who was telling the truth. And some of his more controversial statements all fell into that realm. Another example is his claim that thousands of Muslims were watching the fall of the Trump Towers cheering in New Jersey, in Jersey City. The Twin Towers, right, right. Twin Towers, yes. And um, again, no factual basis for that. But Trump didn't, he didn't back off. He, he doubled down. And there were many people that believed that to be true already. So again, he was he was saying false things, but they felt true to his supporters. Right. I remember during the 2016 campaign, I did several stories on whether or not he actually opposed the Iraq war. And I got a ton of criticism from Trump supporters saying, you just hate him. 
And I'm like, no, I'm trying to find out exactly if what he's saying today comports with what he says he said back then. In most cases, it didn't. Right. Like I said, he's completely situational. We looked into the Iraq war thing, too. There's nothing indicating he opposed it. But, you know, he will stick with his script no matter what. So when I was in college, I had a beloved professor named Hal Lister. He's passed away, but he was uh, instrumental in teaching me some of the fundamentals of this business. And he had this great phrase that I've never forgotten. That's not just a fact. That's a true fact. And what he meant by that was, look, it can be a fact that somebody said something. It's a fact that somebody said something. That doesn't make it a fact. You've got to check that thing that was said and go deeper. What is your assessment of what a fact is and how you know it's a fact and how does that process work in this work that you, Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly do? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the, the, the fact checker, the, the column at the Washington Post, we use um, statements by politicians as a jumping off point to write deeply about complex policy issues. Uh, and one of the reasons why we started the Trump database was a lot of the things that Trump says are, can be dismissed very quickly as factually wrong and not, and not particularly interesting. So we didn't want to be bogged down with chasing the latest tweet and, it's, and di- distracted from our core mission, which is to explain complex policy issues. So that's the rationale behind what we're doing. What we didn't realize was Trump would start to say so many things on a daily basis that were wrong that the database became this all-consuming project. But ideally, a fact is something that's not really in dispute. And part of the, uh, the tricky thing with politicians is they're often trying to sell you a policy, and they're just tweaking that uh, statistic just a little bit to make their policy look better or to make the opponent's policy look worse. And we try our best to dig through all the data and talk to the experts and come to a conclusion as a you know, advocate of our readers. You know, you're confused about this. Here's the closest we can come to ground truth. Uh, what's the Pinocchio? You made a reference to it. I want to make sure our audience understands exactly what the Pinocchio is. Well, we have what is uh, the Pinocchio scale. That's how we rate the politicians, uh, uh, the accuracy of the politician's statements. Uh, it's like a reverse restaurant review. So four Pinocchios is the worst. It's a whopper. Um, you know, goes to three Pinocchios. It's kind of something that's mostly false. Two would be half true. One Pinocchio, unfortunately, we don't give very many of those. But, uh, <laughs> and why bother, right? <laughs> they're, they're, you know, it's in the ballpark, mostly true, just slight shading. And then occasionally we will give something called the Geppetto checkmark, which means it's completely factually true. And we reserve that for uh, claims that are unexpectedly true. You know, we're not going to, if a politician says the sky is blue, well, we, okay, that's right. not an interesting fact check. But suppose they said the moon was made of green cheese and we determined that was true. You'd say, oh, look, unexpectedly true, a Geppetto checkmark. And I should note, we, uh, if a politician says, oh, I messed up, I made a mistake, I made an error, and tells us that we do not award the Pinocchios. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we're not doing it to shame people. Uh, so if a politician admits error, um, no Pinocchios, so it's often hard for them to do that. 
Has the uh, president of the United <laughs> States, this president, ever received a Geppetto checkmark or come remotely close? Oh, interesting question. Um, I believe on occasion he has, uh, maybe once. It was in the campaign. But I'm sorry. <laughs> Not during the presidency. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah, very yeah. good. So, Glenn, on the other side of this break, we're going to play some sound bites from you, and I'll give you the page citation from the book, and then we'll have you describe some of the things the president said and how he said them, and we'll go through some of the fact check on that. I'm Major Garrett. You are listening, viewing, and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. Our special guest, Glenn Kessler of The Washington Post, the book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. Back in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Glenn Kessler is our special guest. The book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. So, Glenn, I want to play for you uh, some sound bites from the president. Uh, this first one, uh, referenced in your book, page 86, October 2018, about U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel is now building seven plants. Uh, the steel industry has uh, literally revived. U.S. Steel is opening up eight plants. Seven plants, eight plants. Uh, Glenn, how many plants? <laughs> Actually, the number was zero. Uh, and the number that number kept growing. I think at one point it got to be nine plants. And, um, you know, U.S. Steel is a public company. If they were doing such, such a major expansion, uh, it's something that uh, would have been announced publicly. Uh, and the president claimed he heard this in a phone call with the head of U.S. Steel. Uh, and, you know, there was some uh, reopening of, you know, a section of a plant that was already operating, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was just it was just a fantasy. And the interesting thing in that case was U.S. Steel simply would not talk about it. They didn't want to get crosswise with the president. So they just maintained radio silence. We're just not going to answer this question. <laughs> Which, from a journalistic point of view, is not one of the more complex questions you've ever put to anyone. Uh, have you opened six or seven or eight or nine new plants? Exactly. Exactly. This I, isn't I a tough the, one. <laughs> I got this. I recall, I don't have it in front of me. I recall I got a statement that was very obscure, but I said, I wrote, basically, they're saying the president is wrong, but they don't want to say it. In so many words. Exactly. All right. Another example for you. This is from January 2020 about President Obama and the Iran deal. Obama gave him $150 billion, $1.8 billion in cash. Queen. Got zero. He got zero out of it. He got zero. Well, I'd love to have that money back. It's a lot of money. $150 billion President Obama paid. And $1.8 billion in cash. Whoever saw a million dollars piled up as a promotion in $100 bills, it's a lot. So that is, I think it's fair to say, Glenn, one of the president's favorites, a chestnut of his. It rolled out a lot. Give us the fact check on that. Okay, there are two elements to that. There's the $150 billion. Um, this was not money for Obama to give. You know, Obama, along with, uh, you know, it was the United States, along with uh, six other countries, Russia, China, 
United Kingdom, France, and Germany negotiated an agreement about restraining the weapons pro nuclear weapons program of Iran. As part of that, there was an unfreezing of assets that Iran had that belonged to Iran that belonged in banks overseas, none of which were in the United States. And you know, the 150 billion is the far end estimate of what that those assets could have been worth. The US Treasury actually said it was about 50 billion. The Bank of Iran said it was about 32 billion. Uh, you know, a lot of it was stuck in things they couldn't unravel anyway, but it was never money that Obama gave to Iran out of the US, you know, Treasury. Which is what it sounds like. Yeah, it was always, yeah, I mean, he always says, we could have used that money. But no, it was never ours to give. It was frozen Iranian money. And um, the, um, uh, uh, you know, anyway, it's just one of his favorite chestnuts, as you say, but it's completely false. The 1.8 uh, million in cash, that had, that's a separate thing, mm -hmm. which had to do with the release of some hostages in Iran one of whom was one of my colleagues at the Washington Post. And um, there was a separate longstanding disagreement between Iran and the United States about a deposit Iran had made to yes. the United States for some weapons back when the Shah ran the, the country. Right. And that had been- We canceled the purchase as a result of the Iranian revolution and the subsequent taking of American hostages, held the money, and Iran always said, you can't hold that money. You never gave us the weapons. Penalties and interest accrued. This was an international financial verdict. The administrations previous to this one had ignored, but didn't make it any less valid in the eyes of the Iranians. And in this context of negotiation was one of their asks. Right, exactly. And so, you know, te technically, the the re resolution of this uh, money issue was not connected to the release of the detainees, but it did turn out that the plane for yes. carrying my colleague did not take off until the plane carrying the cash showed up in Tehran. Right. You know, it's one of those, it's one of those diplomatic artifices, but again, it's, you know, it was money that the United States owed to Iran. Precisely. And for those who are fascinated about that conversation, and it is exactly that, a fascinating conversation, go to takeoutpodcast.com, scroll through our archives, and you will see a show devoted to that conversation with none other than Jason Resign, who is the colleague that Glenn Kessler is talking about. Last one. Uh, this is about Chicago and Afghanistan. All over the world, they're talking about Chicago. Afghanistan is a safe place by comparison. It's true. Not true, right, Glenn? Right, not true. Well, you know, you, you get, this is one of these apples and oranges kinds of things. I mean, you're comparing a city to an entire country, so they got that problem right there. You right. Know, maybe we should, you know, what's the equivalent to Afghanistan, Maryland, or something right. like that? You know, so you know that basic problem. But there were in the same, you know, certainly Chicago is a high homicide rate, but the number of people killed in in Chicago is far less than the number of people that have been killed in Afghanistan over the same period of time. I mean, Afghanistan is a war zone. It's not the same as Chicago. 
Precisely. But that would be an example of the president using something he knows is false to amplify something that his supporters believe is fundamentally true. Chicago's a dangerous place, out of control and bad leadership. Right. Because I guess Chicago, they're run by Demo- it's run by Democrats, right? right There's a right. problem. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, when you think about the and you mentioned this earlier and I want to sort of drill down on this. You said you don't want to chase the things that Donald Trump says that are not linked to kind of substantive policy. Does that take away a third or a half of the things that you could fairly say about the president are untrue that he says? Or maybe something like you're sparing yourself 10% of work. I mean, how does that influence your daily or weekly or monthly workload? separating it on policy as opposed to something that's just a misstatement, exaggeration, and or untruth. Right. Well, it's, I haven't really done the math. And I have to admit that sometimes we simply have to do a fact check, such as when yesterday he falsely suggested that this demonstrator in Buffalo was somehow, you know, part of a staged operation to make the police look bad. Or when he said that Joe Scarborough the MSNBC hosts, you know, had possibly, you know, murdered his aide, who he also suggested was maybe his lover. So things like that, you kind of feel like you have to weigh in. Um, uh, but, you know, because the danger like, of not fact checking them is that they can take on a life of their own. Right. And we all, yeah, there's that. Uh, so you want to kind of stop it, nip it in the bud. In some cases, also, I mean, the Scarborough thing, he's now said it a dozen times. So we, you know, we want to note when things are being repeated in what looks like a deliberate effort of some sort of propaganda. Um, so the, um, uh, and we do, I should note, we have a, we, because of Donald Trump, we created a new category called the bottomless Pinocchio. Again, to deal with that question about a lie. And this is a, where we identify a statement that has been deemed either three Pinocchio or four Pinocchio false, and it's been repeated 20 or more times. So therefore we have to, we can say, you know, the president really should know better, uh, but he now keeps saying it. So that's, that's an, maybe a different way of saying lie. Cause again, we can't get inside his head, but there are now nearly 40 statements like that where he really should know at this point. Very good. That's the voice of Glenn Kessler, Washington Post. He works with Salvador Rizzo, Meg Kelly on the Fact Check team, their book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. Stay tuned for segment four in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back on CBSN, Sirius XM Radio, great radio stations around the country, and of course, all the best podcast platforms. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, our continuing conversation, working from home, not doing the show the way we usually do. Glenn and I would much rather be in a restaurant having an adult beverage. Well, I'll also speak for myself, having an adult beverage and a meal. Glenn, we'll get around to that. We'll get around to that at the earliest opportunity, I promise you. The book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. Glenn works with Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly. Uh, They are all together authors of this book. Does the White House get in your face about this process or does it not care, Glenn? You know, generally, they don't really respond that much to us. They uh, sometimes they uh, engage. 
sometimes they don't. I mean, some they just decide it's not worth um, trying to, I guess, defend the president. Um, they've never really said anything about the database with its 19,000 claims. They've never like disputed that or questioned what we put in there. Um, the president, uh, he seems bothered by the Pinocchios. He's about 20 times now, he has talked about how he hates getting Pinocchios. And if we're, and we're, we're too nitpicky, you know, if he's 99% right, he gets a Pinocchio and he's called a liar. So <laughs> he, he's clearly noticed. That a in itself, not true. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Has the president ever cited your work about somebody else? Yes, constantly. I and mean, if, if we give four Pinocchios I mean, to Chuck Schumer, uh, I gave four Pinocchios to Schumer for a statement about the tax bill. Trump, Trump, Trump trumpeted that uh, uh, quite a bit. And then when we gave four Pinocchios to Adam Schiff, the, his impeachment nemesis, uh, he could not stop talking about it. Of course, at one point, I think he said he got 10 Pinocchios, not four Pinocchios. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the exaggerometer, uh, which is uh, a word I just invented, uh, but I think it applies. Uh, as you know, uh, long before Donald Trump, this whole idea of media fact-checking was scrutinized by those who brand themselves either ideological or partisan conservatives, saying it is disproportionately hard on conservatives and Republicans and lighter a touch on Democrats slash liberals. I'm sure you've heard that criticism. Evaluate it. Well, I don't, I don't agree with it. Um, uh, I know that, you know, Barack Obama was not happy to get Pinocchios either. Uh, and I'm and, sure that White House did fight you on those. Oh, yes, yes. Tooth and they, nail, I'm guessing. Yes, exactly. I would be up until midnight getting, they would like, if they thought there was going to be even two Pinocchios, I'd be up right. till midnight where they'd say, here's another professor you can talk to, or here's another person that will back us up. And, you know, they <laughs> took it very, very seriously. Um, and I always say, you know, between the two political parties, they're exactly the same way in this core thing, this core element. If they think it will give them a political advantage, they will exaggerate. And it's just, that's the nature of politicians. Uh, so I don't think we're easier on Democrats than we are on Republicans. And I can tell you the, the pushback we get from some Democrats is sometimes even more intense than anything we ever get from Republicans. I was the subject of many critical articles by Bernie Sanders supporters. Mm -hmm. We tended to give Bernie a fair number of Pinocchios, which they seem to incorrectly believe was because we were, you know, doing the bidding of mainstream Democrats to try to bring down Bernie. Or well, corporate we just, Democrats or something like that, right? Right. We were, we were just trying to stick to the facts. Um, so, you know, we're, we're the subject of criticism, no matter whose ox is being gored. Right. You mentioned before we went to break something that because of its frequency in this Joe Scarborough case or because of its surprising nature, this accusation about the 75 year old gentleman in Buffalo, you felt compelled to fact check both. Uh, quickly summarize those cases so those who are listening can understand the work you've done on both. Okay, in the case of Joe uh, Scarborough, when he was uh, a member of Congress, 
20 plus years ago, uh, and he was actually, he had announced he was going to retire. One of his aides in one of his Florida offices uh, had a, you know, you know, had something like a brain aneurysm or something like that. It fell against, you know, a desk and was found dead the next morning. And interestingly, there were some people on the left that tried to make it into some sort of conspiracy involving Joe Scarborough. And Trump, years later, has now picked it up and suggested this is a cold case, needs to be investigated. Uh, by all accounts, he, you know, it was thoroughly investigated by the police. There was no foul play. Joe Scarborough was hundreds of miles away. He barely knew the woman. Um, and yet Trump suggests that he may have actually been somehow romantically involved with her, and this needs to be investigated. He's just asking questions. It's kind of the way that the White right. House defends his statements on this. But actually, and we have a whole chapter in the book about Trump and his enemies and how he goes after people that he thinks have done him wrong. Uh, and we don't have Scarborough, that's a recent development, but that's typical of the way the president operates. And this gentleman in Buffalo. Right, this gentleman in Buffalo, apparently the president was watching an episode on one uh, American news network, which is a, a tiny little network to the right of Fox News, and they air all sorts of strange and often factually inaccurate reports. And they ran a report that was based on a blog post by an anonymous person that was suggesting somehow this 75-year-old man who was knocked over by police and was critically injured was somehow using a, his cell phone as a kind of police scanner to, you know, and working on behalf of Antifida. So, uh, it's pretty deep in the conspiratorial weeds. And again, it's kind of shocking a president would even raise this issue and try to promote it. And it's that kind of thing that sort of sounds an alarm within your team. Hey, and I, I wonder, do you struggle with the idea, oh my God, this is so outside of anything that is remotely factual, we shouldn't waste our time on it? Or do you say, no, we have to, because it is so far outside and we need to try to tether it to something in reality. Well, there, there have been times when we've said, no, this is so far out of line, it's not worth doing. There are already five articles on the Washington Post website dealing with this. And then we regret it afterwards because it becomes an issue. So I felt in the case of the Buffalo man, um, it was important to get something down so that we could refer to it in the future if it comes up again. I've gotten kind of a sixth sense of when Trump is going to, you know, it's not a one-off thing, but he's going to actually make an issue out of it. So I kind of feel like this might be a case of that. In the case of Joe Scarborough, I mean, it's now a dozen times he's said it. So that was a case of, you know, we've got to get this down for the record because it looks like it'll be a bottomless Pinocchio. Very good. That's the voice of Glenn Kessler. He and his team, Salvador Rizzo, Meg Kelly, are the authors of a new book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. For our radio audience, sadly, we have to say farewell. Those on podcast platforms and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial, where I'm going to answer the question for you, kids. If you want to grow up and be a fact checker, how do you do that? We'll talk to Glenn about that on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett for the radio audience. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. From CBS. 
CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Glenn Kessler of The Washington Post is our special guest. He and Salvador Rizzo and Meg Kelly, they comprise the fact check team at that august and important American newspaper. And they've written a book called Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth. So, Glenn, how does one grow up to become a fact checker? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, we uh, all are in this business, but I mean, you're the capital T, capital H, capital E with quotation marks around it. The fact checker. Right. Uh, Well, it's not necessarily something I set out to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've, um, uh, you know, the, the Post had created the fact checker in the 2007 campaign. It was started by a former colleague of mine, Michael Dobbs, mm-hmm. former diplomatic correspondent. He was between books. 2011, I revived it because it was that was only for the campaign. I revived it as a permanent feature. Uh, the editors asked me to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they chose me because I'd covered all sorts of I'd covered just about every building in Washington. I'd spent nine years as a State Department correspondent. Before that, I covered Congress, I covered the the White House. I mean, we sat next to each other and knew yes. each other in the Capitol no <laughs> during the government no shutdown. Absolutely. So I knew where all the um, bodies were buried. So to and speak. where the reports can be found, and where you can run these things to ground. That's the that's a phrase I've mentioned before, and people may not know what I'm talking about. But in the trade, we talk about running facts to ground. Right. Right. And, and, so and there's I a process. Right. I had lots of contacts, lots of sources. Uh, I had, you know, I had done fact checking during the presidential debates. It was something I had proposed to the Post when I came uh, in 1998. So I did it in 2000. I remember having funny phone calls with Ari Fleischer during that campaign about my fact check. you did. (laughs) Uh, And... um, you know, the Gore people were crazy about him. They were so upset that I would say Gore was wrong. And Ari would call me up and say, we don't really care. <laughs> right, which goes um, to this other thing I want to talk to you about, which is um, this uh, space in American politics. It's always been there. Perhaps it's larger now than ever before. I don't know. But where people say, OK, those are your, those are your facts, but I have my beliefs. And you can have your facts, but I'm entitled to my beliefs and I can vote on them. And there's not anything you can do about it. Right. And it, we're not trying to challenge people's beliefs. And, 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 you know, my feeling, like I said, the fact checks, it's up to people with what they what they take away from it and what they do with them and how they integrate what we disclose are the facts in terms of their own political behavior. But the, the idea is, OK, let's have a common base of truth and understanding. Because my, my feeling is if you're if you have to manipulate the facts in order to sell your policy, then maybe there's something wrong with your policy. Mm-hmm. It's not right. a problem with the facts. Right. And if you know, one of the problems we increasingly face in the United States in this very partisan age is people aren't even off operating off the same factual basis. There's one narrative and there's another narrative and the two will not meet up. So hopefully we are there to help people on both sides understand, well, here's some ground truth. And from there you can, you know, decide what you want to do with it. Let me ask you something that I'm really, really genuinely curious about, uh, which is to what degree do you and your team operate under a fierce deadline pressure? One of the things that's become true in our careers, Glenn, in the digital revolution 
is deadlines are not what they used to be. They are so much more rapid. The pressure is so much more intense. And I wonder if there is something about this work where you have a little bit of latitude to say, no, we've got, we need more time. Uh, yes, definitely. Definitely. The, you know, we don't publish a fact check till it's ready. We try to have at least one fact check a day, but we don't necessarily, we don't abide by that. Um, and, um, you know, we, I refuse, you know, there's something called live fact checking, you know, the president is making the speech. Right. Uh, we only will live fact check things we have previously fact checked. In the case of Trump, it's relatively easy because he often says many of the same false right. things over and over again. But um, we're not going to necessarily fact check something on the fly if we can't run it down to that point. We'll say, you know, you're going to have to wait a day to find out if what was said in the Democratic debate was correct, because you know we need to actually check it first. Right. Uh, so with, a, with a with a Trump speech in live fact checking, you might just do what you might find in endnotes or a bibliography, IBID. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, we do have this database of 90,000 claims, so pretty easy to go searching there and say, oh, he said this once before. And exactly. The All right. I would be remiss if I let you go without asking you the three threshold questions we've asked each and every guest at the takeout table or the takeout work from home table. So uh, in whichever order you prefer, uh, most influential book in your life, all time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Oh, okay. Well, musically, uh, I basically only listen to the Beatles. (laughs) 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 I've never progressed from the 60s. Can't go wrong. Some so, beautiful songwriting there, some fantastic no, songwriting, I mean, no doubt. My exercise music, it's just every Beatles album ever put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess me and James Rosen. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, and um, favorite um, movie, uh, I guess I will fall on The Godfather or Citizen Kane, one of those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not The Post? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, my, All the president's the, men. I mean, come on. You know, the, no, how about the paper? One of my favorites, the paper. Yeah, the third man, actually. If you want something yes. with a writer, yes, suppose a writer. Mm-hmm. It's the third man. Definitely. Excellent, brilliant, and uh, influential book in your life. You know, um, there's a book I read a uh, long, long time ago. It's called by Nikos Kazantzakis. It's called Report to Greco, which was kind of a semi-autobiographical work. Uh, and it was very influential uh, early on. And it, and it talked a lot about how you just, you have to persevere, you have to work hard at what you do and try your best uh, and, and exceed your grasp at all times. Excellent. Glad it's been a pleasure. Uh, I very much appreciate the time. Thanks for sharing your knowledge uh, and a bit of the process with our audience, because I think you and I would agree for a media under stress, transparency matters more than ever. And being open and, and being able to have a conversation about how this stuff is put together is a service to the audience and I hope helps reinforce a bit of confidence in the work we do. And your the work that you do and your team does is, and this sounds like a cliche, but it's not, the best in the business. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome. Thank you. One more time, uh, the book, Donald Trump and His Assault on Truth, the authors, Glenn Kessler, Salvador Rizzo, Meg Kelly. See you next week, ladies and gentlemen. Bye-bye. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.